Last night we heard that the Buddha said, Avoiding both these extremes, the addiction to indulgence in sense pleasures and the addiction to self-mortification, is the way to realize the middle path. And what is the middle path? It is the Noble Eightfold Path. Namely, right understanding and thought, right speech, action, and livelihood, right effort, mindfulness, and concentration, which gives rise to vision, knowledge, and leads to calm, insight, enlightenment, and nibbana. This Eightfold Path is to be developed. It is developed through mindfulness. All of the Eightfold Path factors are mindfulness practices. And it is mindfulness or awareness based on right understanding. When the Buddha talks about the Eightfold Path and he says right view, right thought, right effort, right mindfulness, right and so forth and so on. We should understand that right in this use of the word means not harmful. This was the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha was concerned with what was suffering or caused suffering and what was the end of suffering or led to the end of suffering. And that was the Buddha's whole lens in looking at life and practice. And he taught that that which leads to the end of suffering or that which does not cause any suffering is right. We could say, oh, that's the Buddha's spin on things. And we're familiar with spin because every event that occurs in our society is spun by the, you know, the talking heads and they try to spin it their way. But the Buddha's spin is and was, does it lead to suffering? Does it lead to the end of suffering? Because the path begins with right view, right understanding. Sariputta was asked one time, how many conditions are there for the arising of right view? And he answered that there are two conditions for the arising of right view. The voice of another and appropriate attention. What does the voice of another mean in this situation? It means that to practice correctly in order to realize 
liberation, we need to hear the Dharma from another. We need to hear what is right view. We need to hear what is right understanding in order to practice effectively to realize it. Now, some of us may have the attitude, I can observe my own experience and figure it out for myself. And that's not a bad attitude to have with most conditions or many conditions in life. We know how challenging it is to believe confidently authorities. And yet the Buddha said we need to hear right view, the right view of the Dharma from another and then apply appropriate attention to our experience in order to realize it. Appropriate attention in this instance means knowing what is skillful and unskillful, knowing what leads to suffering or not. To give you an example, animals, when they are hunting for lunch, when they are pursuing their prey, have a lot of attention not right attention because they have no understanding of the suffering that they cause. A thief in the night also has very refined, continuous, subtle attention but not right understanding or right, not right attention because of the suffering that that thief causes for him or herself and for others. And so when we practice observing our experience or any of the Eightfold Path Factors, we too need to bear in mind what is the attention and the understanding that leads to suffering for ourselves or others, or it leads to the end of suffering for ourselves and others. It is said that the Noble Eightfold Path is to be developed, which means that it is a gradual development. We might call it cyclical. It occurs in stages. And the initial stage or the initial way of practicing the Noble Eightfold Path was taught by the Buddha for those who had not yet really started on the spiritual path, whose minds were quite dense, quite hard and fixed, and he began by teaching them about karma, the law of cause and effect, and that skillful actions condition pleasant results, and unskillful actions condition unpleasant results. Through this faith in karma, 
He aimed to encourage beings to avoid doing evil, to avoid acting unskillfully, to practice sila. A second level, second understanding is when we believe in karma and we understand from our own intuitive experience that our motivation in speaking and acting has effect, produces experience, causes suffering or the end of suffering. With this understanding, we are encouraged to develop wholesome qualities of mind. Any of the tranquility practices that calm the mind, loving kindness as you practice this afternoon, or equanimity, practicing generosity, any of the practices that begin to calm the mind are wholesome, the development of wholesome states of mind, which have as their result pleasant mental experience. A third level of Eightfold Path practice is what's called preparatory practice. It is the practice of the Eightfold Path to prepare us for awakening. It is the path of insight, developing insight knowledge. And then the fourth stage of Eightfold Path practice is called the Noble Path. After one has had some degree of awakening, there is still the continuing on of practice and the development of the Eightfold Path in order to uh, realize the end of suffering. So I want to speak about the Eightfold Path a little bit. It said, the Buddha acknowledge that the mind by nature is radiant and pure, it is shining, but it is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. It is visiting forces that arise in the mind that cause all of the suffering that we experience the anguish, the anger, the irritation, the frustration, the disappointment, the loneliness. The... It's because of conditions coming together in such a way as to give rise to this unpleasant state of mind. The Eightfold Path is the Buddha's prescription for dealing with with these defilements. The first training of the Eightfold Path is right speech, right action, right livelihood. It is a training in sila, or ethical consideration. The view, the right view that supports Ethical action is the understanding of karma. Believing or having faith that if we act out the defilements, we will surely experience suffering. 
both in the immediate present and causing suffering to others by how we speak carelessly or how we act. And we have only to look at the precepts to know the areas of life that the Buddha is pointing to. Our daily newspaper is a catalog of acting out the defilements, often on a massive scale, causing a tremendous amount of suffering. It's not hard to see that not keeping the precepts, acting carelessly with our speech and our action, causes a tremendous amount of suffering. Most of us are here in retreat and we're able to exercise extraordinary restraint. Just being on retreat is makes this a, a wholesome place in a way because, well, we just don't have much opportunity to act out and everybody else would see you if you did anyway. And that's part of the motivation for practicing sila is the fear of consequences. When we fear the consequence of speaking carelessly, acting carelessly, transgressing against others, then we exercise restraint. We avoid that opportunity or we restrain ourselves when the opportunity presents itself. And this fear is not the fear of aversion. It's the fear of wisdom. It's wisdom to know what to avoid. Sometimes because keeping the precepts seems like, well, basic practice, we might think that it's a minor practice and maybe can be overlooked if we just get to the meditation and kind of bypass the sila. But this is wrong thinking. It's really the most significant practice in that it provides the basis for the stability of mind with which we develop insight and liberation. You may have noticed in your practice today to trying to develop mindfulness, tranquility, insight and understanding. You may have noticed how those unfinished or careless experiences in your life that buried long in the past kind of come up for review. And we get to see some of what we did and said that was not so skillful in the past. And in that very arising in the mind and our being rattled by it, shaken by it, reminded of it, our stability of mind is disturbed. There's great emphasis in certainly in the monastery and practicing in intensive retreats in Asia, to preserve your sila, to really do everything you can to preserve your sila because it is the foundation 
upon which the tranquility and the development of liberating insight takes place. The Buddha said of virtue, virtue has non-remorse as its benefit and reward, and non-remorse has gladness. Gladness produces joy, and joy produces serenity. Serenity has happiness as its benefit and reward. Happiness leads to concentration. Concentration makes possible insightful understanding, and insightful understanding naturally leads to non-attachment. Non-attachment liberates the mind. In this way, virtue leads step by step to the highest goal of the Buddhist teaching. Even if we did preserve our sila, not act out transgressively any of the defilements, we still might want to. And our mind could be quite obsessed even though we weren't acting out. And so the second training or the second practice of the Noble Eightfold Path is the training in the development of samadhi or tranquility of mind, collectedness of mind, that temporarily puts aside the obsessing of the defilements in the mind. We're not acting them out, but when they arise in the mind, they can really create a tremendous amount of suffering. Even today, you may have seen your mind obsessing. Desire, aversion, frustration, disappointment, judgment, anxiety, restlessness, sleepiness. These are all the defi- these aren't all the defilements, but they are all defilements among the defilements. And as nice a person as we are, who shouldn't be having to experience this, they come. They come due to conditions of habit, and they're just so deeply rooted in the mind that even when they arise and we see them, we often can't do anything but bear with them. And this is a particular painful place in practice where awareness is good enough to see what's going on but our wisdom is not strong enough to let go. And a tremendous amount of practice takes place right here. And so we come, we sit, we pay attention, we're doing our practice and it seems like we're suffering more Paying attention, developing awareness, doesn't cause that suffering. It reveals the suffering that's already there in the mind. It's said that there's two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to more suffering, and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering is when we hold on, when we grab hold, 
when we get really entangled in the defilements. And it's like squeezing your fist and holding on to something that's unskillful. And as long as you hold on, it's painful. Until the hand goes numb or the mind goes numb and you no longer feel it and you just act it out willy-nilly without seeing how much pain and suffering there really is. When we come to practice, we're taught to pay attention. And when this gripping mind that is entangled in the defilements arises, to feel it. And when we feel it, we, it, we begin to open and we begin to feel how much pain intention has been hidden in that mind that is attached. And it's like opening the fist after decades of squeezing the fist, hanging on to something. Opening the fist, you would feel a tremendous amount of pain that you were not immediately aware, prior to that, not aware of. But this is suffering that leads to the end of suffering because as the mind opens, just as when the fist opens, the pain of opening is obvious. But once open, there's no pain. Well, this is what the place of practice feels like. Often painful, but it's the pain that leads to the end of suffering rather than the pain that leads to more suffering. So be careful when you interpret your experience, your painful experience. It's not wrong practice. It's not bad practice. You're not going backwards. It's not getting worse. It's actually the way of practice. Opening the mind. Seeing where there is holding tension, suffering, pain, and learning how to let go. Gradually, through our efforts, the mind becomes collected. The mind becomes more continuous in its awareness. Or we could say, the mind becomes more concentrated. Concentration is a direct result of the continuity of awareness. Sometimes we mistakenly believe that we need to get concentrated in practice in order to be mindful. But it's just the other way around. It's as we are mindful, moment to moment, the mind becomes collected. And the mind can be collected, concentrated, on a very small, minute, and subtle object like the breath or some minor sensations in the body or the mind could be very concentrated on a very expansive experience. The size of the object that you're attending to, that you're aware of, is not the determinant of whether the mind is concentrated or not. So take note. 
in your practice when you find yourself hunched over, hovering over your experience and burrowing into it, trying to get concentrated. That's just giving you a headache. It's not giving you any wisdom. I just read what the Buddha said about virtue. And one line says, happiness has concentration as its benefit and reward. It's happy comfort of mind and body that conditions concentratedness of mind. It's important to remember that. If you're not comfortable in the mind and the body, it's going to be very difficult to get concentrated. It's a struggle. And so we could use that that the Buddha said to guide our own practice in developing concentration or continuity of awareness and reminding ourselves to relax. Just relax. When the body gets tense, it's hard to want to be there. When the mind gets tense, it's impossible to land on the present object. Relaxing the body, relaxing the mind. Both feel happy. And it's this happiness which has concentration as its benefit and reward. The Buddha said, as we all can confirm, the mind is difficult to control. Swiftly and lightly, it moves and lands wherever it pleases. It is good to tame the mind, for a well-tamed mind brings happiness. It's good to tame the mind, for a well-tamed mind brings happiness. We tame the mind not by squeezing it, putting pressure on it, stressing it, struggling with it, but by relaxing. Letting the mind be happy, and it'll become concentrated. The third training of the Noble Eightfold Path is the training in wisdom. Sila, or ethical conduct, purifies our speech and behavior of transgressive defilements, allowing us to experience the happiness of living in harmony with ourself and others. Concentration or collectedness of mind purifies the mind of the obsessive defilements at least temporarily allowing us to experience the happiness of the mind that's secluded from its obsessions a kind of tranquility and seclusion but that tranquility and seclusion is dependent on conditions that inevitably change. And when those conditions change, the happiness of that seclusion from those obsessive defilements comes to an end. 
it's why we come on retreat. We come on retreat because we take a period of time where we go into physical seclusion, away from, well, the most distracting things of our life, maybe. Current impingement, as long as you have your cell phone off. And yet, the mind comes with you. But gradually, over the days, you can see that we can develop the awareness that secludes the mind from the obsessions. Physical seclusion, just coming on retreat, is great. Mental seclusion is fantastic. But we've all had the experience. Anyone who's been on retreat before knows the experience of the last day of the retreat. When you get in your car and you get on the freeway, it's like, where did my, where did my calmness go? Conditions change. And the happiness of that seclusion is gone with it. So the Buddha said, we need a more powerful training of mind that's more subtle and yet more enduring in order to preserve the peace of mind that's available when the defilements are put put aside. So he taught vipassana, taught insight practice. Insight practice is the development of understanding. By purifying our mind, purifying our understanding of wrong ideas, we look at this package of mind and body, calling it me, my mind, my body, acting in the world as it does. And the Buddha said, it's because we understand this whole process wrongly that we suffer. No amount of seclusion, no amount of calming is going to change that wrong understanding. It is through the development of insight, insight knowledge, that exposes how we misunderstand experience, how we misunderstand this experience of the body, we misunderstand the experience of the mind, we misunderstand the nature of relationships with others. And until we see through our own direct experience what is the way to the end of suffering and what understanding leads to suffering. Until we see that for ourselves, we are prone or susceptible to the suffering of wrongly understanding. It's said that as we develop insight knowledge, we purify our understanding, and when the mind is relatively purified, the mind has greater and greater peace. Not just harmony with others, not just tranquility, but peace. This is the practice we're doing here. The practice is both practicing sila, or ethical conduct, in order to preserve the harmony of this community, 
practicing the development of mindfulness or the continuity of mindfulness in order to experience the seclusion of mind, the happy comfort of mind and body. But we're also wanting to look more deeply into how things are happening in the mind and body so that we can begin to understand correctly how not to suffer. Mahasi Sayadaw was uh, a monk in Burma in the last century who's one of the grandfathers of this tradition of meditation practice. And he said, according to the Buddhist teachings, the practice of insight, vipassana, enables one to realize the ultimate nature of body and mind, to see their common characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and impersonality, and to realize the Four Noble Truths. This is the purpose of practicing Vipassana, to understand the ultimate nature of mind and body, to see their common characteristics, and to realize the Four Noble Truths. And the way to do that is to practice mindfulness. As we know in the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Discourse on Mindfulness, the Buddha said, for the purification of mind, for overcoming sorrow and distress, for the end of pain and sadness, for realizing the liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. Do you believe that? <laughs> I mean, that that's a pretty bold declaration, really. You want to... You want to be free of sadness, sorrow, pain, lamentation, grief, anything that causes you unhappiness? You want to be be free of that? Of course we do. What's the cost? Pay attention. That's it. Just pay attention. Ardently. Clearly. Mindfully aware. If this is so, we should really understand what awareness is, what mindfulness is. And many of you have been practicing mindfulness for a long time. And you may think, I've heard this one before. I'm going to change one thing in this talk. It's an improvement. See if you can catch it. Mindfulness, of course, is awareness of the present moment. Awareness of the present moment. Most of us think that we're aware of the present moment continuously until we stop and take a closer look. And then we see how extraordinarily challenging it is to remember to be aware. If there's somebody there, and and I know... Many people like the first sitting after breakfast when we give a 10-minute guided meditation because during that 10 minutes, you can be aware because somebody's telling you what to pay attention to or how to do it, and you know there's kind of constant reminders, and it's a little more easy. 
still you can space out too. But when that constant reminder is not there, it's up to us. We have to remember the present moment. Remember to take note of, to be aware of the present moment. It's not, it's not difficult to be aware, but it's very difficult to be aware continuously. That's our challenge. It has the characteristic, or mindfulness has the characteristic of not being superficial, not just kind of a general awareness, but an awareness that that really is intimately connected to the present moment's experience. In the Manual of Insight that Mahasi Sayadaw wrote, he asked the question, doesn't a dog know when it's chewing on a bone? And then the corollary of that is, don't you know when you're walking down the street? And of course, if you go up to anybody on the street and say, do you know you're walking down the street? <laughs> they're going to think you're a nut. But they really aren't aware that they're walking down the street. Their minds are off in the past, off in the future, you know, kind of entangled in what they're seeing in the storefront windows, not aware that they're walking. You may have discovered this in your attempt to be aware of walking from the dining hall to the meditation hall. It is really difficult. Well, it's simple, but not easy to do. The function of mindfulness is just that, to remember. To remember to be present. To remember this is a present moment experience. When I first started practicing with Saito Upandita, I was having a very difficult time. I'd, I'd been practicing in the West for about eight years, and Saito Upandita came to America and was offering a three-month retreat. And I was being, we were all getting interviews every, every day. And I was just having an awful difficult time. I was just struggling with um, the way he wanted us to practice. And somewhere in the middle of the retreat, I was waiting for my interview, and just down the hallway where the door was open, the person before me was giving their report to Sayadaw, <clears throat> and I heard this a person excitedly exclaiming about their expansive awareness and that they were remembering their past life experiences, and they were just it was just a big drama. And I went, past life experiences... Where's the breath? <laughs> and so when I went into Upandita, Upandita, I did my bows, and then out of utter frustration, I just blurted out to him, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering past lives or something? And he just calmly looked at me and said, no, remembering this life. Can we keep our practice that simple? If today your practice was encumbered with any other agenda, any other program, any other 
process or progress than just remembering this present moment? Not necessary. And I'm sure you can, you can already reflect on the way we misunderstand practices. The many, many ways, the agendas and attitudes and tasks that we assign to just bear awareness. Fix my life. Hello, it's not about fix my life. It's about be aware. Solve my problems. Fix my marriage. Get me a job. (laughs) Mindfulness is just to be aware. Mindfulness, when developed, manifests as the ability to um, see without spin. Meaning, you can no longer deceive yourself. Because when mindfulness is developed, it sees things the way they are. Or when seeing an incident or a memory or an event from the past, it sees it as it really was, which may not be how you remember it or would like to remember it. But it sees things without deception. Why is this important? Well, we live under the illusion that we are who we tell ourselves we are. And as you know, we all highly edit this sense of self that we present to ourselves and others, conveniently forgetting everything that doesn't fit our self-image. Mindfulness doesn't forget. It knows, it sees, and it'll show you again what you have conveniently stuffed in the closet, hoping that it would remain out of sight. And it doesn't. Mindfulness will uncover, expose, and show you whatever's in there without any filters, without any defenses, without any pretense. Initially, this may feel pretty confronting at times, pretty raw a lot of times, embarrassing frequently, shameful occasionally, overwhelming often enough. But it's only by seeing clearly the way things are that we can come into alignment with it. If we don't see the way things are, how can we come into alignment with it? We'll be struggling to make things convenient or comfortable or fit our expectations. These are all burdens, really, in our practice. And mindfulness exposes them. The proximate cause for mindfulness, there are two. One is a prior moment of mindfulness. Okay, this is the chicken of the egg. Which came first, this moment of mindfulness or the prior moment of mindfulness? Well, we know as we practice, 
and even today after what, two days, you may begin seeing that there is a gradual development in the momentum of awareness. It's slow. It, this is the way it is. You just can't start a retreat where you left off the last retreat. It's just not possible. As much as we'd like to, as much as we think it's going to happen, it doesn't. And so it takes some period of time to just kind of keep at it, and eventually we see, oh, there, there's, there's, there's a momentum to mindfulness. And once that gets rolling, if we recognize it, then it supports ongoing awareness. The second proximate cause for mindfulness is clear perception. Perception is the capacity of the mind to recognize what this experience is. If it has been seen before, it recognizes it as something familiar. It recognizes its unique taste. You know, this moment is unique in that it has its own particular flavor. Clarity tastes different to the mind than cloudiness. Frustration is different than disappointment. Lust is different than jealousy. Anger is different than impatience. How do we know that? Well, because mindfulness sees these experiences when they arise and tastes them. It takes note of the taste of this experience. It is the clarity with which we recognize the taste of this experience that conditions or contributes to the continuity of awareness. The way to enhance clear perception is to name your experience. To name it. If you can name what is being known in this moment, you have to clearly recognize it. I know. It's another added layer of something to do, using words, using concepts to identify what it is you're experiencing. It's true. It is. It's using concepts. It's using words. It's something to do. It takes effort. But it's the effort that clarifies your perception which conditions continuity of awareness. It is a tool to be used when necessary. When the momentum of mindfulness is developed, you don't need that tool. Let go of the labeling. Let go of the naming. Not necessary. Because the clarity of the perception is there. But in the beginning, and in the beginning can be the first few days of a retreat, it can be the first decade of practice, it can, be, it can be whatever it is for you. In the beginning, naming your experience, as simple, as ordinary, and as mundane as stepping and breathing in and breathing out is, when you name or label that experience, it identifies it. It, it kind of forces the mind to taste that experience clearly, to know, oh, that's what it's like. And it's that clarity 
that conditions or contributes to the continuity and the development of the momentum of mindfulness. It seems so simple. We want to just let's just get to the enlightenment part. Forget the but this is this is the step. It's the development of clear perception that develops the continuity of awareness, that develops the concentration, that develops the piercing insight. Matthew Lieberman is a psychologist at uh, UCLA. He did a study on meditators, actually, and did brain scans on meditators who were noting, labeling, their emotional experiences. And what he found was that meditators' brain scans are starkly different than non-meditators. Starkly different. Because when meditators label their negative emotions, you know, the unpleasant emotions, it enables them to disentangle from them. Just naming them. There's more than one good reason to name your experience. It develops mindfulness. It disentangles a sense of self from the emotion. Mindfulness answers the question, what? So much of our conditioning is to ask the question, why? When you ask yourself the question, why, it leads to explaining, figuring out, uh, commenting, narrating, a whole mm, stable full of mental activity. When you ask the question, what, what is being known? What is this experience? Breathing in, aching. Hardness, softness, tingling, fear, anxiety, jealousy, clarity. A single word answer doesn't create a narrative of who's being mindful and how they're doing and you know what day it is and how long before lunch and it's just it's just what? This is an important result of practicing mindfulness is to disassemble the narrative that weaves all, all of our experience into the story of my life. You know where the suffering takes place? In the story of our life. Outside the story of your life, no suffering. How can we learn to experience the fullness of life all that life has to offer without suffering. Moment by moment by moment. Being fully aware, fully present, not creating a story about me and mine. How this is all happening to me, why it's all happening to me, and what I'm going to have to do about it. Therein, is the suffering. Meditation is the work of the mind. It's learning to observe the mind. 
learning to be aware of the mind. It's not particularly about the posture you sit or how fast you walk. It's about what the mind is doing as you're sitting, as you're walking, as you're eating, as you're going to the toilet. Is there awareness of what is actually happening? To be aware, be relaxed. Try to observe. Without expectation, without any goal or agenda, without trying to make something happen. Stuff is happening. You know what I mean? There's there's always something going on. Awareness isn't about making something else happen. It's about just noticing what's happening without any demands that it perform for you, without any sense of entitlement that I should be having this kind of experience because, hey, I did a retreat before. There are so many agendas that attach themselves to our uh, the simplicity of our awareness trying to avoid unpleasant experience, seeking pleasant experience, trying to understand ourselves better, healing ourselves. While all these things may happen, when they are the motivation or the, the kind of the, the reason for doing practice or the expected goal of practice, they get in the way of practice. goal of practice is understanding. Calmness will come. Clarity will come. Calmness will go. Clarity will go. But as we develop understanding of the way things are, where can it go? Where can it go? You'd have to practice delusion hard, consistently, to lose right understanding. It's not dependent on conditions. Once we've tasted an apple, we know the taste of apple. We understand that's an apple. Once we see how the mind unfolds and which ways lead to suffering, which ways lead to the end of suffering, how do we forget? We forget when we're not mindful. If we sustain the mindfulness, we don't forget. Understanding is the goal of practice. It leads to liberation. It leads to the uprooting of the defilements from the mind. Not because we're just exercising restraint and not acting them out, not because we're just in a very protected place temporarily, physically and mentally, and enjoying a defilement-free mind, but it's because in the openness to all of life, we understand correctly. We have right understanding about all that we experience. And it is this right understanding that leads to the end of suffering 
or the realization of peace. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. Saito Tejaniya says. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Such a precious human body, difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain, not difficult to discover. Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. You and I know the facts and the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other which has never been sold or bought by anyone. Our mutual understanding keeps the thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified and sometimes it's smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. <clears throat> There's 45 minutes 